As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest, now on Spotify, so listen on Spotify. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, I know you and I have both been watching the As the World Turns and Guiding Light YouTube reunions, and I mean, loving them. Mm -hmm. For anyone listening who may not know about it, uh, the show's former publicist, Alan Locker, has gathered actors together on a live stream, and they've chatted for an hour and shared their memories of being on the show. So you can watch it on YouTube, and I mean, I have watched them all day. I was so excited to see Don Hastings. As we know, he played As the World Turns as Bob, and I feel like we haven't seen him since the show went off the air. But really, my favorite moment was when Mara West, who came to us from her hot tub in LA, got her husband, Scott DeFreitas, who played Andy, to say hi. It was like just so delightful. It's honestly tapped into something like deeply emotional for me to see the cast together again, even, you know, remotely. I was so moved by how emotional Kelly Minahan, who played Emily, was when she laid eyes on Don Hastings. And oh, yeah. I, I haven't seen Maureen Garrett, who played Guiding Light's Holly and was always such a favorite of mine, like probably since Guiding Light went off the air. And it just, it made my heart so happy to see her. Um, the bonds that, that these actors have as people are clearly still so strong. And I highly recommend spending the time to, to check these out if you haven't. I feel like in this job, I remain a little like steeped in these shows that have gone off the air because we're regularly pulling photos of them for various things and referring to them and historical pieces and so forth. But it's like a whole different ballgame to see the actors in the flesh. And I really tip my cap to Alan for pulling this together. It really is such a great idea. And I'm so thrilled that there are more in the works. So we will get to see yet more of our fan faves on these streams. Oh, it, yeah, it is truly amazing. Um, I actually got emotional when Kelly was signing off and just told everyone how much she cared about them and had cherished her time on the show. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, she got like teary. I mean, it yeah. was just amazing. I really can't wait to see more. And like, yes, thank you, Alan. It has been the best walk down memory lane. And, you know, speaking of memory lane, we have seen the shows post classic episodes to try and extend the current runs of their new episodes. I will say Nikki and Victor's wedding on Y&R <laughs> was a total treat. I mean, getting to see shows from the 80s where things were just so over the top and there was money to spend is just incredible. It is incredible. But I think you and I were texting during Y&R that day and I was telling you that I was like kind of watching it through a new set of eyes because in light of everything going on in the world, it was bizarre to see that many people gathered in the same place in this instance, the <laughs> yeah. colonnade room, uh, which is where Nikki and Victor got married. Uh, there was a, no social distancing going on in Genoa city. Um, <laughs> but what a great and smart thing for YNR to do to re-air that episode. And I'm so excited to see like what else will come out of the vault. Oh, yeah. First of all, I think it's weird to watch any show, soap or no. I mean, heck, even commercials without thinking that. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's amazing how quickly your mindset can change. 
So we also have some fun casting news coming out of Days. Kelly Tebod, who is currently airing as GH's Brit, will make some appearances as a new character named Zoe. She is a lawyer who will be involved in Evan's story. Uh, so she will cross paths with like Orpheus and Evan and Rafe, as well as Ben and Sierra. Uh, so now we will have both Wally Kurth pulling double duty as GH's Ned and Days' is Justin, and now Kelly doing two roles. And, you know, when she was on the podcast, we touched upon her first soap role, which was actually on Days, as a character named Alicia in 2011. Yeah, I'm excited to see Kelly on Days. Like, I am an unabashed fan of her Brit on GH, and I think it'll be fun to see what kind of energy she brings to Zoe. Goodness knows she is a uh, an actress capable of really bringing a spark to a show. Now, I actually just spoke to Wally last week for an upcoming story in the magazine, and he was telling me that one of the biggest things he's realized during this time period when both of the shows that he works on were forced to take an unexpected production hiatus due to the coronavirus, is how much he loves to act and how strange it is to suddenly not have scripts to learn and scenes to work on and how much he was really missing the work and was eager to get back to the studio once it's safe to do so, of course. Um, It was just a really sweet conversation, and I'm sure a lot of actors in daytime can relate to the sentiment. Oh, I am so sure. I mean, hey, Mara, I miss seeing you every day. Ditto. Um, Ditto. Well, I am actually super excited about our guest today. It's Maurice Bernard, who just released a memoir, Nothing General About It, where he goes deep in discussing his life's challenges and the obstacles he has faced. And I know you just had such a strong reaction after reading it. Yeah. You know, for as many years as I've been interviewing Maurice, and for the many years before that, that I was reading interviews with Maurice, there was a lot in the book that I didn't know about. And certainly he goes deeper into his childhood and into the dynamics of his family and his wife's family than I'd ever been exposed to. And of course, he's incredibly candid, like sometimes in uh, painfully vivid detail about uh, his mental health journey. I definitely shed some tears by the time uh, I finished the book. And if anyone is listening, hasn't bought it yet, but is planning to do so, I encourage you not only to buy it, but to buy it this week to help make it a bestseller. Oh, yeah. Well, you and I had the pleasure of speaking with Maurice a few weeks ago, um, but for everyone listening, be sure to listen all the way through to the end because we've got an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook for you with Maurice talking about his early working relationship on General Hospital with Tony Geary and Vanessa Marcil, and it's just going to be an amazing listen. So let's get right to it. Hi, Maurice. Hi. Thanks How so are much you? for joining us. Good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing real good. Thank you. Well, we are very excited to speak to you. Um, I know Mara just finished the book and absolutely loved it. I, I get it next. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she got it first. <laughs> I won the arm wrestle. <laughs> did, really. <laughs> we, are, we argued. Um, <laughs> so tell us first, like, when did you even start kicking around the idea of writing your memoir? Well... I think when I did Oprah, she mentioned that I should write a book, but I didn't really, I didn't really think about doing it. And I thought too much work, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, over the years, people have said it, people have said it. And, uh, especially because of the mental health. So I did it and, um, I'm so glad I did. Did you have any reservations about being so vulnerable to put your story out there in this way? Well, no, because if people who know me know that I'm an, I'm an open book and I talk about everything, there's really only a couple things 
in my life that I didn't talk about. And it would have, that would have been too much. Uh, well, but I, I flirted with it because I, I'm so honest, but I was advised to uh, not talk about it. So everything else. Uh, yeah. It, you know, the, you know, it's funny because the time, the only time that I really felt vulnerable was when I did the audio book and it would, it just broke my heart, man. I would be like, you know, towards the end of the audio book, there was a couple chapters that just killed me. And that's when I felt like, oh, whoa, man, this is too much. <laughs> yeah. You're like reading your own story back. That must be very emotional. Yeah, because it, it at some point with me, because I have a problem reading out loud. So doing the audio book is very difficult, but but I had a great director and at times I would cry, cry like a baby. She's crying. But um, it was just, you know, it, it, it just, it was worthwhile. I gotta tell you, but it just, it did break my heart a few times. I know Mara cried. She told me that was her report back to me. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times, a couple times. Well, you know, you know, it's funny with, with my mom, a lot of times, you know, if, if I do a, a scene on GH or, or a movie or something, and she's not crying. I said, well, I guess I screwed up. <laughs> she goes, why, hijo? Well, because you're not crying. I'm crying, <laughs> I'm crying inside, hijo. <laughs> uh, the old crying inside. Got yeah. It. <laughs> well, um, tell us about the process of working with Susan Black, who wrote the book with you. I mean, how did you begin? Did she start interviewing you? Like, how did Yeah, go? she interviewed and a tape recorder. She's a friend of mine, and she's a, a film writer. And she, Paula, knew that she would be the one to write the book because, because I had my other ideas, and not 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 that Sue's not great, but I just I kind of wanted to a deal quick, right? And mm -hmm. Paula said, "No, we're we're having Sue do." And I said, "All right." And and what I love about it is the way Sue structured it the way it moves and, it, and you kind of get to this and you get to that and you get to that. And her and I would just sit and talk for just hours, man. Cause I like to talk anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so she would just, you know, we just did it. And then that was it. It was, I kept talking and talking. I think we, for over a year and a half. Wow. Mm. That's so amazing. Digging into telling your life story and revisiting difficult times, like, like when you were institutionalized before your bipolar diagnosis, and you really paint a picture of how terrifying experience that was. Even talking about it for the book, did that get emotionally overwhelming at times and stir things up for you? You know, that's my favorite. Well, when I first, when we first started doing the book and I read that chapter, that I felt, okay, the book's going to be pretty good. Because that chapter, it was so real to me. It was like a mm -hmm. movie. And, you know, it, that, that was what, that was the hardest time ever of my life. But I got through it. And that's the beauty of all this is overcoming things you think you can't. So that's the message I want to get out is, and even today, I, I talked to somebody just now and I said, you know, this morning I had anxiety everything going on in, in, in the world and 
there's, I'm not going to lie. The first thought of anxiety, my anxiety is I can't do this. And then because I have tools, the other, the, the strong side of me says, yes, you can, and you will. But my first thought in anxiety is I can't. Mm-hmm. And that's a scary, that's the scary part. Sure. Now in the hospital in the mental institution, it was 24 seven. I can't, that's the difference. And that was a nervous breakdown. So it's not anxiety, but I think it's all combined anxiety, depression, and manic episode in one. And then having, having to be locked down to the bed like an animal you, you're, every day, every day, every minute was, I can't do this. But you know what? I did. I got through it. It says a lot. Hey, we're getting deep here, man. Already. Uh, what would you say was the hardest period of time for you to write about? Maybe. Well, it's funny because maybe what we just talked about, but reading the audio book, definitely the hardest was the end when I had to deal with death. Mm-hmm. And then the, the meditation that I did at the end, that got me, man. That was just that was just real hard. I, I just don't remember. I was sitting on I, my couch, tears streaming down. Yeah, man. Really, really powerful. I just got chills you saying that. <laughs> it, it got me because I had forgotten that it was there. And so I was like reading it all cool, right? Because the first chapter, uh, the, the, before that, I had cried over a bunch of people, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then my wife and my son come in and I'm like, cool. They're reading about the meditation. And I'm like, oh, geez. I start breaking down again like a baby. So that might have been the hardest for me. Um, now, you're very candid in the book about your own faults and things that you've done that you're not proud of, and also some very intimate details about your family and your wife's family. Did you like get permission from Paula or from your kids to write about Well, Paula was 100% cool with it. Um, no, ho, she just said not 100%. <laughs> <laughs> but how about 80%? I, I, I'm not uh, as comfortable with putting it all out there like Maurice is, but I know what good it does, and that's why I overrode that feeling that I had of hesitation. That's a good answer. <laughs> Very good answer. You, you just heard and, the, and the I think the, she's right. Mm-hmm. You just heard the queen talk, and you never talk. You never see her <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> um, we we bowed on Paula. <laughs> no, it's not necessary. <laughs> but you know there was stuff in there like when I threatened to kill her it's not easy to talk about but it was needed but I had already talked about that on Oprah so it wasn't like I think there was a little more detail though in the book right a little more detail yeah yeah it was tough times well Mara and I were talking about how really the hero of the book I'm sure you will agree is Paula and your love story yes. is central to your life story for sure um, so, you know, were there parts that were difficult for her to read? Um, what was, uh, some of the, one of the most difficult things about the book for you, from your perspective? Honestly. Your family or what I, what I, my bipolar? You know, honestly, for me, it's all difficult, um, because I'm, so much more private than Maurice is. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't mind talking about it to people one on one, 
have done that often, especially when he does appearances. And that actually, I feel good about that. But knowing it's going out nationwide for everyone to read and I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of anything. There's no, there's no feeling like that. I'm actually quite proud of Maurice and, and what he's overcome and what he's gone through and where he is today. So I'm conflicted in, in why it's hard for me to, uh, to share it. Um, okay. So Maurice, in the book, you, um, you examine how like generational differences and the culture of machismo played out in your childhood and in your parents' marriage. In a way that I thought was really profound. Was that something you would put into words before? Or um, did you come to like a deeper understanding of those dynamics in the process of writing about them? Well, I, I was brought up very, uh, you know, Hispanic, Hispanic culture and being macho. And when you're, when you're macho, you don't cry. And also, I was abused. But it was part of my dad. He was only doing what he was. They did to him, and what you know went down the down the chain. But uh, it's funny because when I had my nervous breakdown, I was in the hospital. My first nervous breakdown was all about crying. It was almost like all the time that I couldn't cry when I was a kid came out in the hospital. So if you came and, and visited me in the hospital, I'd be crying. If you left, I was crying. So I was just, in, in my eyes, it was almost like all the crying I didn't do over the years I was doing in the hospital. But that's uh, because of the upbringing, right? And then I broke the chain with my son, because I, with Joshua, he, when I was, he was, when he was young, I would get, I would feel a lot of rage. And then I decided to figure out a way to change for him. And so I think I, you know, I obviously broke that chain of how my dad used to be with me. No easy feat, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't. It, it, uh, and it's funny, you know, because when you're trying to, with him, I just tried a different approach, a different way of talking to him. With, I guess a little more respect. And because my girls are easy, they were all easy. But as we're speaking right now, I think to myself, can you imagine what, when fathers tried a different way and it doesn't work? That must be difficult. At least for me, whatever I tried, and it was funny, the first time I spoke to my son in a different way and everything, he just looked at me differently like, wow, my dad's trying. Mm. And I think that's kind of what changed our relationship. Mm -hmm. When you look back on everything now, what would you say you learned about yourself from taking stock of your life story by putting it all down on paper? I think what I've learned is... Uh, that you truly, uh, this is, might sound easy or cliche or whatever, but what I've learned at where I'm at now at 57 years old is you truly can do anything you put your mind to. And when you, when you really think that you can't do something, you truly can. I mean, it's all, and I hate to say the word, but state of mind, but it's all, it's all state in the state of mind. You know, it's, it's what you're, what you, what you, where you get your thoughts to be to help you. I didn't I don't think my I don't think my my thinking process was very strong years ago. I really don't. Even when I you know when I in in the book you read about John Gotti, even there it wasn't strong. I mean, I did it and I overcame it because my wife willed it to happen. And now I'm stronger because of it, 
But at that moment, I still was weak. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John Gotti. Thank you, life experience. Um, what was the feeling for you when you finished the book? I was just glad it was over, to be honest with you. Because we didn't have a book deal. And some people turned us down. So it's like, man, this, I just truly believed it wasn't going to happen. And then HarperCollins came in, believed in it, believed in us. And it truly worked out. And I'm so glad. And can you imagine in these times that I can do, I can start, you know, because I do something once a week called State of Mind on, on Sundays. And I've been doing it for uh, a year now. And, you know, I, I never imagined this would happen in what's going on right now. But I've been talking about my life with mental health and the response has been just amazing. And it made it makes me it made me realize how many people live with mental health. It's mm -hmm. unreal. So now in these times, it's needed. You know, the scary part is people are going to have anxiety that never had anxiety. And anything you go through the first time is really going to be tough. Mm -hmm. You're right. But it will pass. You just got to figure out how to breathe. And I have a lot of techniques and um, to help people and stuff. So mm -hmm. what was it like for you to hold a physical copy of the book in your hands for the first time? I have a video That's that I amazing. will put out. I will mm -hmm. put out that happened at a show that I did in uh, Irvine, Paul. Yeah, in Irvine, and they were they gave me the book for the first time with the pictures and everything, and I just I just broke down. It was amazing. You'll see it. I'll put it on my Instagram. Look forward to it. Yeah, totally. It must be an amazing sense of accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the time that and the audio book where I I just couldn't hold it. I was just broke. I just cried. You know, it was like. Especially when I saw the pictures, uh, Paula did the pic. Paula worked with HarperCollins, and Paula worked her butt off. To, and these pictures are amazing in the book. Amazing. So now I'm gonna have to buy the book because the copy I have, doesn't have <laughs> and I can't be having that. <laughs> one more, so one of each. And the and, exactly. and also also the re, the the reviews in the back of the book, we got kind of last minute. And uh, we have great people like uh, Stephen A. Smith, Dr. Oz, Dr. Drew, Victoria Gotti. Uh, That's great. You know, we just we just got a bunch of shit. You'll you'll see. It. I just swore. It's all right. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Wait, they beat it out. Don't worry. All right. <laughs> I was just gonna say we make an exception for Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. We are in challenging times right now, and it's harder than ever to connect with the right therapist. Fortunately, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping trauma, and family conflicts. They work with 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states to connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. If you're not happy, you can change and ask to request a new counselor anytime. There's no delay and there's no charge for doing so. You can schedule video or phone sessions, which is great for people who might need a little bit more support in current times. 
Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Dishing with Digest listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code DISHING. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash dishing and simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash dishing. Okay, so I'm curious to know if your co-stars at General Hospital have had the chance to read the book yet. Yeah, no, you know, uh, I gave the book to, uh, Laura Wright has the book right now, and uh, Max Gale had the book, Kristen Storms has the book, and William uh, Lipton, mm-hmm. he has the book. That's it. So I didn't have a lot of books. I had a few books, and so... But Laura has my book, which is the original book with the pictures. Okay. I got to know, was it first come, first serve? Was there a lottery? No. <laughs> no. Uh, I just kind of felt like I wanted certain people to read the book and put and maybe put a, you know, do a video or something of what they felt of the book. And mm-hmm. I picked certain people like Max Gale because of the Alzheimer's. William, he's a younger guy. That's how kind of I went. And then I, the last thing I did was Laura. So we'll see. We'll see what Laura said. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one thing that definitely comes through in the book is your love for your children. And you also admit, though, to being unable to express your love to them as freely as Paula does and having regrets about that and working on that. Um, have the kids read it, and has it opened up any new lines of communication between you and them? No one's read it. It's just, you know, that's how I keep humble because my they're cool. They're just like their dad is their dad. But I, I'm trying to work on my uh, issues in that area as much as I can. It's not easy, not, you know, because I feel like I should be more affectionate. I should be more verbal. So I'm continue. It's it's my it's my fault, if you want to say it's a fault. And it's I, as a dad, it's my duty to fix it. <laughs> so speaking of dads, you tell how validating it was to land the role of Nika on All My Children because it was the soap your dad watched. You talk about leaving All My Children in large part because you were really focused on getting back to California and for a movie career. Yes. Uh, look, looking back, do you think that you should have stayed longer on All My Children? No, I, I was cool leaving All My Children. I needed to get out of New York and, and go to L.A. And, and, you know, the first year of L.A. was actually gangbusters, except that I ran out of money. Uh, <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, no, I don't, I'm cool with all that. I don't regret any of that. And, you know, a lot of times for me, it's like, Everything that you do in life and what you go through in life is, is, is just meant to be, to, to, to make you who you are. So somebody asked me a question yesterday. If you could not have gone through what you went like nervous breakdowns and all that, would you go through it again? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't want to. Even though now I'm glad I did because it's made me who I am and, and stronger and can deal with, I hope, anything. But would I want to go through that again? No. Too too much pain. Too much pain, man. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you also do talk about the ups and downs of your career in between your stints on All My Children and General Hospital, including how you were the runner-up for the role that went to Antonio Banderas as Tom Hanks's boyfriend in Philadelphia, and how devastated you were not to get it. You know, what do you think about when you look back on that time now? Yeah, that was a trip, man. You got to understand. In one week, I did. I went for a sitcom audition, right? And they literally called my agent, and my agent said. I said, yeah, what they said, no, we can't tell you. What? What? They said you suck. They don't want to see you again. <laughs> Whoa. So I got down, man. I got depressed. And that same week, I go in and read for uh, Philadelphia. And the big, big time cast director, he's like, oh, my God, that's incredible. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you, Howard. He goes, yes. Uh, you know, I want you to read for the Columbia and, the, and do a table reading. So I'm sitting there at the table reading, not with Tom Hanks, but with great actors that I've recognized. And the, the, the great thing was in the script, it wasn't in the movie, but in the script, they go to a, uh, what do they call it? Party. Costume, party. Uh, costume party, dressed as Desi and Lucy. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm Desi, Tom Hanks is Lucy. So when we got to the, the, the lines, I'm like, oh, come on, let's go. You're going to go to the party, nah? <laughs> and they were laughing and I thought I had, you know, I'm like, am I going to get this freaking movie? And, and it ended up, Antonio Banderas had done that documentary with Madonna and he took the job for no money. So there you go. But you know something? I don't think I was ready to break into movies. I really, because I hadn't, uh, I hadn't studied enough yet and had skills. So I'm glad. And plus General Hospital would never have happened. Mm -hmm. Look, you got to understand something. This is getting me emotional now, but what GH did for me when I first started and had a nervous breakdown there and quit the show, I will never, ever, ever forget that. That kind of loyalty, holding my hand. Anybody else would have fired me. I wasn't popular then. I had three weeks on the show, but Wendy Rich, Shelly Curtis, never forget. It's uh, incredible. It's a, it's, yeah, it's just yeah, like I've, read that you talk about that in interviews before but in the book in the context knowing so much more about where you were at the time in your life it really is powerful um, yeah well, there are so many great stories and tidbits in this book that i think will really be of special interest to gh fans and to fans of funny um but i'm interested you talk about Tim shriner on your very first day of work and ultimately, looking about his struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. Uh, did Ken know you were going to be writing about that as well? Yeah, I asked him for that, yeah. And, you know, with Ken, you got to understand something. When I first came on, and for like forever, maybe 20 years, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I wasn't close to him. I'm not going to say we were enemies. I just, and then in the last, four years, I don't know how many years. I don't know what happened, something we clicked and now we're like, we love each other, you know? And I didn't know he had this OCD. I didn't know. And then we started talking and, uh, and um, he, you know, it's amazing. And, I, and I'm glad that I was able to talk about him in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, Maurice, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that you are talking to two very big Sonny and Brenda fans. <laughs> we, we, 
we bring them up kind of anytime we can. <laughs> anytime we could get a reference in, we're talking about yeah. Um <laughs> And, you know, you totally address the pairing and working with Vanessa in the book. You know, all Sonny and Brenda fans have favorite moments of theirs. Uh, mine was when he gave her the bracelet. Um, what are yours? <laughs> There's a lot, man. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say this with the Sonny Brenda. The, the greatest scene without dialogue that I've ever seen for me in, in the soap is where she opens the doors and then she's... Sonny sees her, thinks that she's dead, and the music, the the rain. And I was sick that day. I had to go to the emergency the next day. Seriously? I don't know. If, yeah, I was had a big stomach problem. And nobody could figure out what it was. So when I was laying on the ground there, it was it was really bad. But that scene, walking in, and then it was fantastic. But for me, that's probably my favorite scene. But I love more so. Not just Vanessa, but anybody who I've helped as far as young actors. I just love to see how great of an actress she became. And part of that was I helped her and then she went out. Larry Moss, an acting teacher, helped her. Then when she came back, she was just I was like, wow. To me, that that's more than any any you know scenes or this or that. It's to see how. Because how, I got to tell you, Vanessa will tell <laughs> Vanessa will tell you. She says I said she sucked. I didn't say she sucked. That's bullshit. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I said that, you know, look, you, you know, do you want to be a great actress or a good actress? And, and then we started working together. It was great. So that's what I'm more proud of. It's, it's funny in the book, speaking of that, how uh, you acknowledge that sometimes your memory of things is a little bit different. Like, Paula says you announce your engagement, whereas you say you asked her to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was at the 21st uh, birthday, her 21st birthday party. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I didn't really. You guess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. It was, it was, you said, yeah, didn't you? Well, no, because you didn't ask. Oh, so you didn't have to say yes. (laughs) You knew my answer. Yeah. All right. We we almost broke up about two months before that. You actually didn't even talk about that in the book, did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, when I, when I, uh, well, we won't get into uh, that stuff, but uh, when I was in New York and I had a dream that I had died, that Paula had died and she won an Oscar and all that. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yeah, that was cool. And then I, I I bought you earrings, remember? Yeah, no, I just don't remember oh, yeah. in the book if you talked about that. But we, we had almost broke up a month before that, maybe two months before. So when we came back, it was really Maurice's homecoming, uh, coming back to California. It just landed also on my 21st birthday. Um, and uh, he took that opportunity in front of all his family and friends to... Uh, Announced that we were getting married. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. It worked out, I guess. Clearly. Uh, okay, so you write about in the book uh, about how it bugged you that there came to be this dynamic uh, on General Hospital where Jason was the hero and everyone hated Sunny, and that it was really hard to try to you know, play this charming mobster no matter what awful thing Sonny did. And I'm really curious, like, do you ever wish 
Sonny was in a different line of work or feel like him being a mobster has been an obstacle for the character over time? You know, look, it's like, I would have, you know, especially early on, I would have liked to have played maybe different stuff. But anytime they would try something different, one time he got out and then the fans hated it. And, um, and I got to be honest with you, you know, it, it's funny because lately, uh, for a while there, I was kind of not, not phoning it in, but just kind of doing what I do. I think more, to, more so the Alzheimer's story, I don't feel as much sunny as I do Maurice. Mm-hmm. And it's just not as, it's just hard maybe and emotional, but it's, a, it's not as fun, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, the, so I decided the last two or three months to go back to playing Sonny, like the Sonny that I used to play. And it, I changed the energy. You can ask Steve Burton. He'll, he'll tell you too. And it's, it's a whole different vibe, man. And that's who Sonny kind of, it has to do with his business, uh, danger, mystery. If it's written well, it's really works. Obviously, if it's not written well, people can get tired of it. But when I'm in that mode, acting-wise, it's exciting for me. You also describe a period of time on the show when Tamara Braun was playing Carly, where you were very unhappy with the storyline, and it sort of bled over into what you described as maybe kind of bullying behavior toward Tamara on your part. Why did you decide that this was important for you to admit to and address in the book? Well, because I don't feel great about it, and it was part of my life that was very, very difficult too in different ways. I thought that the, I thought the, the audience would like to, you know, get little tidbits mm-hmm. and it would be cool for that. But I also don't feel great about it. And I, but I already talked to Tamara about it. So it's not like it's a secret, but a lot of what I was doing came from, I don't know if I want to say ego or not getting what I want and just being a baby. Right, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> What's Paula's verdict for you being a baby? She kind of nodded like kind of, yeah. I'm oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, so another, like, Carly-related question. So you wrote in the book about uh, how you advocated for Jennifer Bransford, who was the short-lived Carly, in between Tamara and Laura with show executives. And you've talked about that in interviews before. But reading it in the book, I wanted to know, like, were you angry with the powers that be that be at GH for not keeping Jennifer after you went to bat for her? Yeah, well, that's another one of those things where I was uh, just being selfish and, and whatever I want, I should have and that type of thing. Um, but I did love, she wasn't right for Carly. Yeah, she wasn't right for the Carly, but she was, you know, what I loved about Jennifer is when I was in a scene with her, I didn't know from one second to the next what was coming. And to work with that is is exciting as hell. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I didn't I didn't think about what's right for the role or not. I just thought about, you know, I also thought I could probably fix it, whatever was wrong. But the reality was she just couldn't do it. It was too many too much dialogue, it was too difficult. And I had to uh, stop fighting 
Now, when it comes to your work, you do write about how you went from feeling like you had to hide your bipolar because no one would hire you if they knew to being now very open with your colleagues when you're going through a rough patch. Um, like you say, you'll give Laura a right, a heads up if you're having some dark days and that she's really great about handling it. Um, you know, what are those conversations like and at what point do you feel like you have to let her know? Uh, it's funny because Laura always has my back, which is an, uh, a cool, a cool thing. And I can always go to her if I say, look, I'm feeling a little bit. And she has, she has a way of, of helping me. But the, it's funny because the last anxiety I had, which is horrible, which was about four or five months ago, before I was going to New York, I went to work. I didn't tell anybody. And I just did the scenes. I didn't, I didn't tell Laura. I didn't tell Steve. And um, now you're probably wondering why I didn't say anything. I, I don't know. I, I, you know why I didn't say anything? Because I was going to get on a plane that day. And I didn't feel, to be honest with you, I didn't feel like getting into it because mm-hmm. I thought it would make it worse. So I just kept quiet. But usually I would say, hey, Steve, hey, Laura, feeling a little weird, you know, feeling this, feeling that. And they're, they're, they're great, both of them. But this time I didn't say anything. And I had to deal with it on my own. And I did. And I, and I overcame it. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was entertained in the book when you touched on the way that the haters, as you reacted when uh, Sonny was got to play hero and rescue everyone on the haunted star from uh, when Helena brainwashed Jake Doe into putting bomb on the boat. And then you discussed, like, more generally how much that kind of reaction, how much outside of school and the response you get on social media matters to you. And I think it may really come as a surprise to people, given your statue, stature, uh, rather, in our industry and your eloquence and your popularity, that those kinds of things still get under your skin. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and I don't and I don't mean to pat myself on the back. I actually don't get a lot of, of on my Twitter or Instagram, a lot of haters. But every so often they come around and I kind of I, I, I like messing with them. <laughs> because, because once I say something, you know, and I'll say something clever or funny or, you know, and then all my fans just jump on them. It's like vultures, you know what I mean? But yeah, I have a problem with, you know, worrying about what people think. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to, trying to get through that. It's just like my wife doesn't have that at all. And I have it and I've always had it. And, but I'm much better than I used to be. Uh, but as far as like the, what you said earlier about when I used to be like, it was the whole town against Sonny. Mm-hmm. I want, I want someone to dispute that, please. So I can, <laughs> so I can give you every story and tell you exactly. Cause I remember it, how that is. Nobody has said anything to me, but I'd love somebody to say, that's not true. No, the, the, Jason and this and Carly. I mean, if we go down the line to where, you know, Sonny shot Carly in the head, it was Sonny's fault that Michael got in a coma. Then they put Sonny with Emily and everybody in town thinks he's Woody Allen. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Not Woody Allen. (laughs) I mean, and I I could, and, and those are just a few, but. If I really researched, I could give you so many. So I used to say to the to Jill, "Hey Jill, I don't mind being in a fight, but give you know, but I I have a toothpick. Give me a gun, man. Have somebody on my side too. 
And then their answer would always be, well, you're so good, Maurice. We know you can get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. After, after a while, it drove me out of my head. man. But in spite of all of that, you know, Sonny is really one of the most popular characters, you know, ever on daytime television. And I think that's why it probably come as a surprise to people just because you're Maurice Bernard, you know, that you do struggle with that kind of insecurity or that, you know, these issues are very personal and deep felt for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's funny because we're all, we're all built differently. And um, like I say to my dad and whoever else, I mean, you should kiss the ground that you don't have mental illness. I mean, it is like in the last year and a half, I've been feeling a lot of joy my whole life. I've been happy, but true joy, I've never really felt my whole life. But in the last year and a half, because of whatever I've done, you know, going through things and this and this and that, I've felt true joy. True joy to me, to me means when I go out to the, with the, with the goats and I can, I just start crying without even thinking about it. I just start crying. That's that kind of stuff. And, and it's probably what normal, what, what everybody just feels like normal. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, so I say, you know, because my dad and I always used to have these conversations about what is mental, what is anxiety, what is depression. I just said, Dad, just be thankful. You just, you're just cool, and you don't have anything. I don't know why mm-hmm. I went on this tangent. I just did, but anyway, <laughs> we'll take it. All right, absolutely. And you know, Maurice, it, it is really interesting to me. Um, you write in the book about how, you know, as funny. He was sort of this impenetrable tough guy. So for anyone to come forward and speak openly about their mental health issues, it was going to be a little unprecedented, but it might even have been an, a bigger risk for someone in your position who plays this heartthrob mobster on General Hospital. And I don't think it can be overstated how much you being one of the first really like helped change the conversation, you know? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I mean, but it's interesting as far as mental health, like that the book is coming out at the same time that one of the worst viruses in the history of of the world is happening. So hopefully I at least if I could just if, if my whatever's in there with people who are going through any kind of depression, mental illness, bipolar, anything very difficult but you can overcome it you can overcome it mm-hmm. well we were going to ask is that the main message you hope people will take away from your story yeah you know the the, the message is um, no matter how difficult anything is it, and you think you can't do it you can that's kind of the that is kind of the message i mean i don't have really anything else but um yeah, I don't know. Times are tough, man. And it's, uh, like I said before, can you imagine the people who are dealing with stuff for the first time in this crisis? No. That's hard. why I hope, I hope there's, can, can you, can we still go to a psychiatrist? No, but a lot of psychiatrists were talking about doing, um, online FaceTimes and things like that. Yeah. yeah some sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that has to be, 
Otherwise, it, it, it's it, and 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 I'm looking out my window and it's like horrible. The, it's raining. It's gray. Uh, but uh, well, what I, else? Well, yeah. I mean, I certainly do hope that uh, that everyone takes advantage of uh, social media as well. Reach out, you know, and uh, we all kind of are in this together. And I think. Uh, your state of mind, too, where you're so candid about how you're feeling in any given week, that can be a resource for people as well. Um, so we're we're going to let you go, but Maureen, this is a really special book. I was deeply moved by it. I learned from it, and I thank you for writing it, and General Hospital fans and fans of yours are going to absolutely love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll be doing uh, uh, Instagram live almost every day and Facebook live almost every day. Just to, if anybody needs to talk to me about anything that, you know, mental health, uh, I'm there. If they want to laugh, I'll make them laugh. I don't want to cry, but sometimes they make me cry. They'll say one <laughs> thing, you know, it's like yesterday. My, you, you know, I told my wife that I didn't really want to go too deep. Life is deep already. So I, I, this one person said something that I read and she's like, you don't have any idea how much you've helped me. And I just started crying. And I'm like, ah, got me again. <laughs> well, you really are so responsive on Twitter and on Instagram. Yeah. It must make people feel good that they're being heard and that their message is, you know, resonating with you as well. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's a good thing. Well, that's where social media is fantastic, right? Yes. So for those people who think oh, social media is, so, and especially in these times, social media is fantastic. Right. You are not alone. Absolutely. Well, again, we thank you so much for joining us today and Paula. And yes. You're welcome. We have yeah, special so guest star, Paula. <laughs> Congratulations on the book and okay, we look forward you. to what's going to come as a result of it. All right. Thank you. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thanks. Have Thank a great you day. Both. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Maurice Bernard for being our guest. If you like this podcast, we're on Spotify, so listen on Spotify. Please be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now. And now please enjoy an exclusive excerpt from Maurice's memoir, Nothing General About It. When I first met the great Anthony Tony Geary, who played Luke Spencer, I knew immediately there was something unique about him, a gravitas both men and women love. Our characters became partners in crime on the show, and we became dear friends off screen. But let me just say he scared the hell out of me initially. First time I had to do a scene with him, I was literally shaking. We were on the stairs to Luke's house, and the script called for him to grab me. Well, when we got to that part of the scene, he grabbed me so hard with so much force and power from his character, I was so in the moment as Sonny that I pushed back just as forcefully and ad-libbed to get his damn hands off of me. Tony told me later shooting that scene was when I gained his respect. As we started to work together, I got to know Jeannie Francis who played Luke's soulmate, Laura. Their chemistry was pure magic, and I always respected her talent. 
subtly layered and full of emotion. She's also one of the kindest, sweetest people I know. And just like Tony, she wound up being a close friend. It was actually Tony who brought up the idea of a life for Sonny outside of crime when he asked one day, Hey, Maurice, do you want to just be Tonto to my Lone Ranger? I weighed the question before answering honestly. Tony, I enjoy working with you a lot, but yeah, I love to do my own thing. He winked, then go upstairs and ask them for a family. I then told the writer and producer Claire Labine that I was happy doing the show, but that I would like for Sonny to have a fuller, more rounded character life. And if they couldn't accommodate that, I understood. Of course, throughout that conversation, I knew they were also aware that my contract was coming up for negotiation, which gave me an edge. That's when Sonny finally got a life. But first, Claire gave him a girlfriend. Vanessa Marceau, who originated the popular role of Brenda, had been on the show a year before I arrived. From the minute we both touched the same suitcase on the dock after they put us in a scene together, it was inevitable. Fans ate it up, and we became an on-screen couple. I loved working with her. Off-screen, I asked her one day if she wanted to be a good actress or a great actress. Of course she wanted to be great and accepted my challenge to work her ass off, which she did. She was like a sponge and wanted me to teach her everything I knew about method acting. Around the same time, I saw a scene with Steve Burton, who plays Jason Morgan, and told the writers his talent was wasted. I asked them to write a storyline for us, and they put Jason in a terrible car accident, after which he forgot he was a quartermain and came to work for Sonny. The minute we did a scene, another great fan favorite was born. Jason and Sonny are like Batman and Robin. They need each other. We started working together all the time, and it wasn't long after that when I gave Steve the same challenge that I had given Vanessa about acting. You're deep, and you got talent, but it's wasted. You want me to help you out? You want me to teach you the method? I asked him one day at work. Like Vanessa, he was all in. We went over scenes in my dressing room. Sometimes he came to my house where we worked for hours. On set, he took intensity to a new level and started being intense. Even while pouring a cup of coffee, which got the attention of the director. Steve, what are you doing? The director asked. Maurice is teaching me the method. The director groaned. Okay, Steve, I get it. Maurice's acting method is great, but you're pouring a cup of coffee. Everyone erupted into laughter, including Steve. I was happy, too. At last, I was bringing in money and could support my family without taking any more funds from my father. When I found out in the summer that I was going to be a father myself, that added a whole other layer of excitement. Paul, of course, was over the moon, and while I was thrilled, I also felt overwhelmed by emotion. It was exciting and a little terrifying to think about being responsible for a little human being. 
And it made me even more aware of my responsibility to myself and to Paula. I had vowed to her I'd never go off my meds again, and now staying on lithium became more important than ever. 